You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 23rd of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show... I have joined this Remain Alliance for three reasons. Stop Brexit, fix Britain and move on to reform the EU. A new anti-Brexit party launches its campaign to fight for seats in May's European parliamentary elections. Calls for protests after officials confirm that US President Donald Trump will arrive in the UK in June on a three-day state visit. My guests Linda Yu and Lance Price will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... We have gathered today because we have chosen which path we want to take and now we are waiting for the others to follow our example. Swedish activist Greta Thunberg is in London talking climate change with politicians and fellow campaigners. So how did a 16-year-old teenager become the face and the voice of the environmental movement? And as China's technology workers criticise the number of hours they're expected to work every week, we ask, how long should the average working day be? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Linda Yu. She's a broadcaster and author of The Great Economist. And Lance Price, who's a political commentator and author of several books, including Where Power Lies. He's also a former special advisor to Prime Minister Tony Blair. So welcome both of you to the programme. Now, deja vu is the phrase that probably best describes the current state of British politics. Just over a week ago, the former UKIP leader Nigel Farage launched his Brexit party to contest the May the 23rd European parliamentary elections. Well, today it was the turn of the anti-Brexit party Change UK to unveil its EU election campaign and introduce some of the candidates who will be fighting for a share of the 73 parliamentary seats that are up for grabs. Amongst the runners are Rachel Johnson. She's the sister of the leading Brexiteer Boris Johnson, who's also the former British Foreign Secretary, and the former BBC journalist and broadcaster Gavin Esler. So, Lance, both of these parties can only succeed if the Prime Minister Theresa May fails to get her withdrawal deal through Parliament before the May deadline. Can she beat the odds and pull a rabbit out of the hat, or am I talking complete nonsense? Well, she could. <laughs> <laughs> she could. And uh, there are rumours coming out of Downing Street this afternoon that she's going to have one more go uh, next week to put her withdrawal agreement before MPs. And only if that withdrawal agreement is passed uh, will the European elections not be held. So, um, you know, unless things have changed dramatically over the Easter break, uh, and as you said in your introduction, it feels like Groundhog Day, it feels like they've taken 11 days off, come back, and everything is exactly as it was before they left, and nobody's really used that period for any meaningful reflection to move things on. Uh, So, uh, you know, unless that's happened and we just don't know about it, uh, the chances of her getting that withdrawal bill through still seem pretty remote. That means that there will be these bizarre European elections. Um, Now, of course, it's possible 
that a deal could go through Parliament while the election campaign is going on. So you would then have all these candidates going around the country saying, vote for me, and then at the last minute, the uh, election itself is pulled. Right, so don't vote for me then. But I mean, look, it is very bizarre, Linda, but let, let's take a look at this new party, Change UK, because they are against Brexit, as we heard in that soundbite at the top of the programme from, from Gavin Esler. They don't like the idea of leaving the European Union. They also want a second referendum. What are their chances of actually succeeding on this? Because, look, at the end of the day, the majority of people did vote to leave Europe. And quite frankly, the majority of people, regardless of whether they voted to leave or remain, are probably sick to death of Brexit. So the idea of another referendum, all the old arguments being rehashed, it's quite chilling. <laughs> I, uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I think um, so. Change UK um, is the old Tiggers, the uh, the independent group of MPs, 11 of them, who I think the, the main thing they have in common, perhaps the only thing that they have in common is that um, they're for remaining in the EU. And so I think for them, um, this is a election to fight because they want to represent the UK in the EU. This is the premise of why these people have defected, actually, from uh, Labour um, and the Conservatives. And I suppose the issue that they'll have to face is it's a very, very um, ideologically split country at the moment. But remember, MEPs are selected based on regions. So there's going to be regions which have are going to be more for leaving, more for remain. So I think, you know, they're, if they were strategic, which I'm sure they will be, they are, after all, um, longstanding MPs. This is not quite like um, other new parties, like in France, on Marche, um, a lot of those uh, candidates had never held office before. These are experienced political politicians. They're experienced operatives. So I think they will be very strategic in making sure that they are putting forward a message that will garner support. And um, I mentioned they have 11 MPs. They may well actually gather more because one of the things about Change UK is that they're sort of picking up the people who are just unhappy with Brexit in both Labour and the Conservatives. And at the moment, with 11 MPs, that makes them what? the fourth, perhaps around the fourth mm-hmm. biggest party in Parliament. So they're already fairly sizable. Yeah, and it's this theme of, of disruption because when Nigel Farage launched his Brexit party, that was that was one of the things which he he pushed on, wasn't it, Lance, that he was going to be disruptive and he was actually going to stop uh, stop Britain from actually dropping out, out of Europe. But on the basis of what Linda has said and the, the firepower that this new group can actually pull on, they can be equally forceful in their own right, just as disruptive, surely? They can be, and they need to be a a disruptive party. They need to be an anti-establishment party. So the risk that they've got is that they are seen to be, um, you know, politicians, just like all the other politicians, who've left their parties out of ideological reasons or personal reasons or whatever it may be, and that they felt that their career choice was to go into this new grouping. Now, what they what they should be doing is being a grassroots movement full of people, as as Linda says, who aren't necessarily uh, experienced politicians. And to be fair, a, a lot of their candidates do fit that bill. And, and Gavin Esler, who who you talked about, of course, has never, um, and we heard in the introduction, has never uh, taken part in, in in politics before. And many of the other candidates, names that none of us around the table are probably familiar with, um, fit into the same uh, f- into the same category. But this has to be a sort of you know pro-remain grassroots 
grassroots rebellion of angry people, the sort of people that we saw out on the streets of London, a million of them, uh, the ones who were signing that petition that reached over six million vote, uh, six million signatures to to revoke uh, Article 50. Uh, and they mustn't look like rather sort of smug, self-satisfied Westminster politicians. Yeah, and that's the point, isn't it, Linda, that it is all about optics, really, because I think that they've, they've also, t- they claim to the fact that they don't just have Rachel Johnson on their team and also Gavin Esler, but it's also carers, for example. Now, mm. the care sector, that's quite telling because a lot of people who work in that sector are from the EU and people who run this have said, well, hang on, we're going to get hit really badly on this in terms of finding mm. people who are willing to take on this role. So it is the optics, how it looks, shoving this, this label that they're part of a middle class elite. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. And in fact, the name of the party... Um says it all, doesn't it? Change UK, even though they're actually for remaining in the EU. <laughs> contradiction. So it's a little bit again, <laughs> but but it is about the optics. And obviously, to be fair, what they want is a changed role for the UK in the EU. So obviously, that's what um, they would have to push um, mm. for. They can't just want to... Um, I say this with some trepidation, because obviously, a certain president of the United States did win on a slogan saying, make America great again. Um, so the normal political <laughs> thing about going back my uh, yeah so I'm not too sure now but change <laughs> clearly change UK is intended the name is intended to show um, that they are for an anti-establishment mm. movement for those who are pro um, EU or at least anti the way that um, Brexit has been handled and I think bringing in new candidates is actually something that um, frankly all parties should be doing because sure. politicians um there's no reason why people with experience can't enter service. And I think that's probably something a lot of parties have moved very far mm. away from. That may well be appealing. It is actually part of Macron's Amarche appeal that you have people who hadn't served. So that just gives you a sense of how much people at this point dislike or distrust career politicians, people who've never, uh, in quote, worked. So I think they're just all tapping into that anti-establishment feel. But as Lance said, the leaders are, of course... Um, experienced politicians <laughs> they're not uh, they're not newbies so. <laughs> but but if, if you look at some of the characters who've been recruited I mean we've we touched on 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 Gavin Esler but it's also Rachel Johnson we know about her family connections etc I mean what does she she bring to the table apart from the fact that she's standing up against her brother and that you clearly got this divide within the Johnson family? Yeah, and you can see why they uh, chose to put her forward as one of the candidates from the I mean there were there were tens of thousands of you know yeah thousands of people who put their names forward to be um, to be candidates um, and it was kind of a no-brainer to have Rachel Johnson uh, chosen as one of the candidates because you know she will be on the front pages of a lot of the newspapers tomorrow um, it's good publicity she's also a you know she's a good candidate um, and she believes very strongly uh, in uh, in the cause but it's, it's also important that they are not just about I mean change is a crucial word and change is normally a winning word in elections people want change but it has to be just not changed to the tired old way of doing politics in this country which is massively um, uh, unpopular at the moment and and so they're pushing at an open door on that one but it also has to be changed within Europe they want to reform the mm. European and Union well, that, and that's certainly what Gavin Esther actually stressed again referring to that clip that we want to change the EU so yes. they, they're basically pushing back against the accusation that exactly. they're so in love with the EU that they're completely averse to changing things 
things. They want to keep that status quo. And they're not a status quo party. They are, they are in that sense, an, a, a, a disruptive party, an insurrectionary party. They want to change the way politics is done in this country, and they want Britain to be a constructive partner within European, within European politics and in the European Parliament, but one that is arguing for change, uh, which uh, may then address some of the reasons why a majority of people voted for Brexit in the first place. Just one final point about the candidates, Linda. I mean, look, you've got Boris Johnson on one side, his sister on the other. You've also got the matter of his younger brother, Joe, who's actually been a bit of a rebel in his own right. I think Stanley, the father, he's also pro-European. So could you actually see more members of the Johnson clan actually going over to this new party? Oh. <laughs> a yeah. mischievous question. Oh, well, I was going to say, I think, I think the Johnson clan are very difficult to predict. But I suppose what we should remember is Rachel Johnson. She was a part of the Tories and then she went to the Lib Dems and now she's trying Change UK. And I am not surprised these days people want to try different parties. We may well see the rest of the clan do so. <laughs> she, may, she may change her mind again before too long. Yes, she so might they, do. they have taken a bit of a risk in, in uh, going for somebody as politically volatile, shall we say, as she is. <laughs> OK, then let's move on to our next topic, because the US President Donald Trump will make a three-day state visit to the UK from the 3rd of June. Mr Trump and his wife Melania will be guests of the Queen, and they will attend a ceremony in Portsmouth, marking 75 years since the D-Day landings of World War II. Now, the White House said the upcoming trip would reaffirm, quote, the steadfast and special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom. However, when Mr Trump visited the UK in July last year, protesters took to the streets and floated a giant balloon that depicted him as a baby in a nappy. He was also holding a mobile telephone in that balloon depiction. But Linda, I mean, how would you say the special relationship between Britain and the United Kingdom has fared Mm. under Donald Trump's watch? I think... Under Donald Trump, I think people have had to look at the special relationship increasingly in the light of being about the office in the country and not necessarily the person, because he's a very divisive um, person. And yet the longstanding relationship between America and Britain, not just in economic matters, but also security and all of that um, is important. And I would say it's increasingly important given a lot of the challenges that we face. But the occupier of the office of POTUS is clearly somebody who is upending a lot of the traditional relationship. So you can't even separate the office and the person because he's literally changing uh, the policies that upon which a lot of these relationships are built. So I suppose the question is... Um, the Prime Minister Theresa May of Britain offered him a state visit, remember, when she was the mm, first foreign right. leader to visit Washington, him in Washington, D.C. And it kind of didn't get underway, uh, you know, faltered a bit, and then it got sort of moved yeah. and cancelled, and it just became a working visit mm. uh, last year. Um, and so I, I think there's a real issue here in terms of what kind of reception is he expecting in a country where clearly they've had to rethink this a number of times? And will this actually harm this special relationship mm. if it isn't delivered um, with a you know with a kind of pomp and and a ceremony that the American president very much yeah. likes? Because in central London, that's where the protesters um, are likely to congregate, and, and it's was, difficult to control. Sure, because he was able to dodge central London last year, that's and, this, right. and this is the point, isn't it, Lance? That this this has kind of moved things up at several gears. And 
the relationship appears to be holding together so far, but he hasn't helped it because certainly when he was in the UK, he he was he referred to Brexit. He overstepped the mark. He even went so far as to suggest that Boris Johnson would make a better prime minister than Theresa May. So that's not really a great way to deepen your friendships. Yes, and this is an invitation from the head of state, from the Queen. Uh, and in that sense, it's a diplomatic uh, invitation. And yet he is a most undiplomatic president. Uh, and in fact, the personal conduct of him towards the Queen during the last visit. And there's that famous picture which will be used time and time again, I'm sure, of him sort of striding out in front of her almost as if she didn't exist and pushing her her aside and (laughs) and blocking her out. I mean, he just doesn't know how to behave. Um, So it will be very interesting to see what the reception is and and whether or not they change the normal way that these things are done. Because normally there's a procession down the mall in one of the state coaches with the Queen and the President side by side. If that happens, there are going to be jeering crowds on both sides of the mall. And And he's very thin-skinned, so he's going to hate that. He'll hate it. Um, The Queen will be mightily embarrassed by it and she shouldn't have to face that kind of uh, embarrassment. Um, So there's no doubt it's going to be a controversial uh, visit. And even I saw this this afternoon, um, as you say, he's he's going down to Portsmouth because it does coincide with the anniversary of the D-Day landings. Uh, And even there, the the, the leader of Portsmouth Council has said that he would prefer Donald Trump not to come because Donald Trump attracts controversy wherever he goes and he will distract attention from those remaining veterans for whom this is a very, very important occasion. Mm. And as I guess as well, well, that I mean, it's, there's always this this spectre from Trump's perspective of, of of the Obamas hanging over everything because the Obamas really set the trend in how you can get on the side of the monarch because they're very good friends with the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh and the fact that Michelle Obama managed to tr- to, to charm the Duke of Edinburgh who's notoriously crusty that's a bit of a, of a thing in itself. So, do you think that? Trump will probably be making comparisons and probably feel that in some ways he might have been shortchanged compared to how his predecessors at the White House were treated. Mm, I think he will certainly have that in mind. And so, you know, the Obamas, uh, George W., they all got the full pomp and uh, ceremony. But I suppose for Trump, he's going to have to weigh that against the fact he's also a very controversial figure and there will be protests and there should be protests because that's what a democracy is all about. It's a sound of democracy if people want to to jeer him. But can he take that? Um, he's a very thin-skinned um, person, which is very unusual for a politician, I have to say. Well, maybe Lanza disagree with me on that. <laughs> uh, you know, but he, I think, so that's going to be the calculus. You know mm. there will be protests. That baby Trump blimp is probably going to be somewhere around London. Um, and But he wants the same treatment as his predecessor. He often on social media compares himself Mm. to what his predecessor Obama has done or hasn't done. And so, you know, I'm not sure where where that calculus will ultimately uh, play out. But I think those three days is going to be a massive diplomatic challenge, I feel, for the civil servants (laughs) and the diplomatic corps who are going to have to orchestrate this because the last thing you want in this kind of thing is for the relationship, as I mentioned before, to actually sour on the Normally, these are welcome occasions where, you know, U.S. president, whoever it is, you know, gets the most incredible reception and they leave with wonderful feelings about Britain. And (laughs) and that's what, you know, fingers crossed that will happen before he goes over to France and celebrates the 75th anniversary anniversary of D-Day. Probably has an awkward handshake with Macron, you know, so we can only hope that. It's very uneasy bromance. (laughs) But I mean, the other other challenge as well, Lance, is that traditionally when you have a visit to come into the, to, to this country on the state visit, 
they address the chamber in the House. Well, both both houses are brought together in the one chamber, the House of Commons, the House of Parliament. And really, the power rests in the hands of Speaker John Burko. Would John Burko actually say, look, let's just hold our noses in disgust and let him talk? And if, if he agrees to that, will Trump stick to the script? Yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's not strictly true, actually. And there are a lot of state visits that don't involve uh, an address to both Houses of Parliament. But he's going to be expecting it, though, isn't he? Well, he'll, he'll be wanting it. Because Mrs Merkel got it. He'll want it because Mrs, Mrs Merkel did it. But, I mean, if you think of the people who are accorded that honour, and it is a great honour and it is quite a rare honour, Nelson Mandela, the mm. Dalai Lama... Uh, Angela Merkel, who's been in office for over a decade. They are people who come with a unifying message. They come uh, as uh, peacemakers, if you like, healers in the political uh, spectrum. Um, And to offer that platform to a man whose politics are just based on division, uh, who are based on separated community from community, race from race, whatever, who just thrives on division rather than people together, I think would be a massive mistake. We know that John Burko doesn't want to invite him. He might well have to give in to pressure if uh, both the mm. palace and, and Downing Street and everybody else if they wanted well, him to, to do it. But, do you know, I don't think that pressure will come. I think everyone will recognise that this would be so inappropriate that they won't even suggest it. I guess the other question as well is if Mr Trump does stay in Buckingham Palace overnight, will he take selfies in his bedroom? But we'll leave that to another day. He might not stay there. There's renovations happening in Buckingham Palace. Ah. So the reports are he can't stay there. Oh, right. So that's a nice, that's a a nice get out. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Lindy Yu and Lance Price. Now coming up next, listen to the science, listen to the scientists. Advice to politicians from Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager, inspiring the global climate change movement. Prompted by Brexit, among other things, we've embarked on a design update and moved our print operation to Germany. Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, unpacks the on-page innovations in the April issue. Sadly, I think in the UK, we do not see the same investment, the same passion for paper anymore. That's something which where Germany is very different. I mean, Germany has a culture of apprentices and people who really learn their craft and skill, and there's still an investment in great print. Hot off the press, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Still with me are Lindy Hugh and Lance Price. Now, until recently, the name Greta Thunberg would have meant very little to the public or the media. The 16-year-old schoolgirl came under the spotlight in 2018 when she waged a solitary protest against climate change outside the Swedish parliament. Well, that action led to millions of schoolchildren in 112 countries taking a day off school in protest against the impact that climate change could have on their future. Well, since then, Greta has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize and over Easter was in London addressing protesters from the extinction rebellion movement who've been holding their own peaceful protests against climate change. So Linda, how is it that a 16-year-old climate change activist can wield the kind of influence that politicians, pop star celebrities can only dream of? Mm, a just cause. Um, and I think the ability of social media to amplify um, 
And it is, I think, for her generation. So a lot of um, school children and millennials, I'm never really sure the definition of these generations. <laughs> but, you know, I think for the younger generations, climate change is a crisis. I don't think they, there is a movement behind this. This is not something that um, I think for maybe for older generations, it was a question of debate about how you address it. For them, it's a crisis. And therefore, addressing it means doing everything to require countries to become carbon neutral, to stop using fossil fuels. And um, I believe she traveled uh, for two days yeah, by train, on the train because, you know, in, uh, in her view, that um, her generation won't fly unless it's absolutely mm. necessary. So these are very... Uh, She's obviously very articulate. She's very much part. She's the face. She's become the face of a movement. But I think generally for that, for the younger generations, the view on climate, they're becoming much more vocal because they don't think enough has been done. And as I say, it's a bit of a sea change mm. from the debates around what you do about it. Do you cap emissions? Do you trade carbon? Do you tax? Do you, you know, it's that's not the debate that the younger sure. generation feel is, is producing results. But let's say for argument's sake, Lance, that you had an adult who was charismatic, interesting, as passionate about the subject as Greta. Would the world have taken notice or just simply looked the other way? I don't think so, because you need that combination of uh, personality, uh, backstory and obviously for these young people a bit like Malala actually if you remember Malala when she came over from yes, Afghanistan Malala the way in which she cut through and the people people listened to her uh, but also let's be honest you know those of us who are a bit older carry a lot of baggage with us um, and the climate change debate for us is about what we're prepared to give up and for the for people of her generation she's only 16 the whole, they've got their whole lives ahead of them. So it's not as if they're going to have to give up all the international travel that they've been enjoying unless they've come from a particularly privileged background. They're having to decide how their life is going to be led rather than how they're going to change the life that they're already leading. And that gives a sort of clarity, I think, to their perspective. Um, and also, of course, it's their future. Uh, and uh, there's no getting away from, from that. If they're willing to make the sacrifices uh, and not enjoy all the material benefits that we've enjoyed, uh, having been born at a particular time, mm. then that gives a great deal of uh, clarity to their perspective, but also a great deal of moral authority to what they're, to what they're saying. Um, and the rest of us really have to sit up and listen. And, and Linda, she's made it clear that everybody has to work together on this. But given what she has achieved so far, does it expose her to unreal expectations of what she might achieve in the future? Well, I think that's always the arc, isn't it? You sort of start off with, um, and this is not particular to her. In fact, I kind of want to say it's the trajectory of all politicians. Sorry, Lance. Is that <laughs> you start off ideological, you start off about change, about all the things you're going to do, and then you sort of end up, I think, um, in some type of compromise. I guess it's like the old saying by Andrew Cuomo, the, US, the former New York governor, you campaign in poetry but you govern in prose. And mm. I think for activists, it's a very similar arc. Um, but that being said, without, I think, the activism, um, you, would never, you, would, you wouldn't have a goal with, mm. to which to, you know, to, uh, to aspire sure. to. And I guess as well, the other point, Lance, just to, as the final point really in this subject, is that she certainly has changed the way that people are viewing teenagers because we tend to see this generation of teenagers as very, very selfish, very greedy. They're just out for making money very quickly. They're very vacuous. But... 
she is so passionate about this subject that when she, when well, her activism started really from a, from the age of, of of eleven, and she was depressed, genuinely depressed about the state of the polar bears. So she's really changing the way that we perceive youngsters. Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I think she's not alone in that. Actually, um, if you look around the world, there quite a few young people have come out. I mean, uh, we've seen it in the United States over the reaction to some of the awful high school shootings, for mm. example, and that's a much, perhaps a more obvious one. But also, a lot of young people who um, uh, turn into veganism, who are making uh, all kinds of sacrifices in their in their own lives, and are showing a sort of, as I say, a sort of moral clarity that those of us who've been around a bit longer seem to. If we ever had it, maybe we've we've started to lose it, or we yeah. or we struggle to retain that sort of moral fibre at the centre of our beings. Mm. Okay, then let's move on to our final subject, because Microsoft staff have published a letter in support of Chinese technology workers who've been complaining about the long hours they're expected to work. They're governed by the industry standard 996, a philosophy endorsed by Jack Ma, the billionaire founder of the conglomerate Alibaba, which means they're supposed to work from 9am to 9pm, six days a week. Microsoft employees are calling on China's technology sector to comply with local labour laws, which limit workers to a 40-hour week, Linda, 996. Six. That's brutal. <laughs> That's long. That sounds tra- I'm tired talking about it. <laughs> Just thinking about it. I mean... Yeah, and I suppose the thing you always have to ask is, um, is it really productive? Because I think that's become the debate of our time, which is um, there's quite a few proponents that perhaps we should be working four-day weeks because being productive isn't the same as when everybody used to work on a production line. So literally being at work meant churning out widgets. Mm. Um But (laughs) uh, we've moved to more of a services-based economy. I was going to say, but some of these factories obviously still have that practice, which is, I think, why the Chinese, um, some of the tech workers who might be working more manual jobs are doing these longer hours. But I think, you know, so one, are they more productive? Are people motivated? Would you not get more done if you actually stuck to a 40-hour work week? And then I guess, finally, automation is actually what's going to change everybody's work habits. So I mentioned their factories. Most factories especially on the high end, are automated. So you don't actually need to have people literally standing there making widgets anymore. So I sort of think this, you know, this practice is not great. They should be complying with um, Chinese regulations, global ILO mm. standards. Um, but I think it's going to change because of uh, robots. OK, but in terms of, of, of the working day, Lance, it has changed over over the years. I mean, you, are, you and I are of a similar vintage. So we remember nine to five. But I mean, it's pretty much obsolete. But from your experience working in the cut and thrust of politics, what was an average working day and how did you power yourselves? Well, I mean, the average, I mean, you know, I would have been happy when I worked at Downing Street. I would have been happy with 996, I can tell you. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and not having Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair on the phone at sort of, you know, five to midnight when you've been up since six o'clock uh, and basically working from the moment you woke up in the morning. But, you know, that was a choice. I chose to do that job um, and uh, nobody told me that I that I had to and uh, nobody forced me to do hours that I wasn't prepared to work but it's I mean it, Linda's absolutely right were we productive by working those sorts of hours we weren't and you see politicians oh, it must make... have worked because he won three elections well true yes but I mean you know I've you know I've seen him and I've seen other politicians absolutely 
dog tired having to make very very difficult life changing decisions uh, when they were in no fit state to do right. so, so it's, the, not, it's not a good thing okay so the moral of the story is cut back your hours guys we have to leave it there but uh, a thank you there to my guests Lance Price and Linda Yu for joining us here at Midori House and today's show was produced by Tom Hall it was also researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Helena Jere was, was one of the researchers and our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett